Well, good morning, Calvary Church. As Wayne mentioned, Rich is not with us this morning because of potential COVID-19 exposure, and so you're stuck with me. And if you didn't know that or you missed it, now you know. I was going to make a joke that if you couldn't see all the way to the front, sometimes people have mistaken me for Sean in the past. And so I was going to say, I'm not rich. And so if that was confusing to anybody, I'm not. But I'm excited to be with you this morning. And as Wayne says, we're going to be taking a look at chapter 1 of Philippians this morning. But as we turn there, I have a question for us this morning. How are we supposed to live out our faith when faced with opposition? When perhaps people say things like, isn't it narrow-minded to think that Jesus is the only way to God? Or why would you follow a religion that tells you to go against your natural desires? Or is it worth it to follow after Jesus if it costs you something and it isn't easy? Perhaps you haven't been asked these questions, but maybe you've been in a situation where you're the only Christian in the room and the opinion is against you. Or perhaps you risk being socially or culturally ridiculed or outcast because of your faith. Or perhaps we have temptation to conceal our Christianity so that we do not rock the boat and make waves in our areas. How are we supposed to live worthy of the gospel amid opposition? Now this question that we ask this morning is applicable to us, but it's also applicable to the Philippian church in the end of chapter 1 in verses 27 through verse 30 today. And that's where Paul is going to make the case that the Philippians should live worthily of the gospel in unity despite opposition. And that's the title of our message this morning. If there's a slide up there, don't criticize it because Eric did a great job. It's Jason who threw it together last minute because I got a call at 5 o'clock last night. But that is the title of our sermon, Live Worthily, Ultimately of the Gospel, in unity, not just by ourselves, but together as the body of Christ, despite opposition, persecution and opposition to our faith from the world. Yet as we get ready to take a look at our text this morning, I invite you to pray with me, but also pray for me this morning, because I have prepared this in the past, and I can preach it in my own strength, and many of you would say, Jason, that was okay, it was a pretty good sermon. But in order for a sermon to be effective, God has to be the one to work through it. Jeremiah 17 says, cursed is the man who makes man his strength and makes flesh his strength. And so I invite you to pray with me and for me this morning that God would be the one to move. Because if he moves and speaks through his word, you will be edified. If I speak my wisdom, you will not be edified. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, God, I am encouraged, delighted, and also uh, humbled, Lord, to be here this morning, Lord Jesus. Of all the times where I could choose to preach this message of all messages, Lord, I would not choose today, Lord Jesus. And yet, in your sovereign will, you have so decided that that would be the case. And that is according to your wisdom, Lord Jesus, not my talent or anything that I can do. So, Lord, we pray that as we open up your word this morning, that you would allow your word to go forth, that you would allow it to speak to our hearts, that you might nourish us, that you might guide us, that you might correct us, and that you might train us in righteousness, Lord, because we need your help every single day. And we thank you, Lord, that we're able to gather together this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, as you're turning to Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, the last time I spoke in Philippians, Paul, in the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, had been dealing with his current circumstances. We had seen that the gospel was advancing in many different areas. Paul himself, when he writes to the church at Philippi, is under house arrest in Rome, so he's not with them in that moment. And he tells them that despite everything that's going on, the gospel is actually going forth and bearing much fruit. But here in our text this morning, Paul pivots his message from his circumstances to the exhortation that he is giving to the Philippian church. And that's where we pick up in chapter 1 of Philippians, verse 27. I'll be reading from the ESV this morning. The Word of God says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I, Paul, come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm with one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for faith in the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. For this is a clear sign of, to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that, that I still have. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Now, what is Paul talking about here in this context? We, in our modern world, are 2,000 years removed from the situation that was going on in Philippi at the time. And many times it's easy for us to gloss over what was taking place there. But if you remember in Acts chapter 16, when the Apostle Paul first came to Philippi, he encountered quite a bit of opposition to his message. Yes, people were coming to faith. You remember Lydia came to faith in her household. But later on, Paul and Silas were imprisoned in the Philippian jail. And yet the Lord worked through that. But even from his first visit, Paul was encountering opposition to his message of spreading the gospel there in Philippi. Elsewhere in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians mentions Macedonia, which is the province that the church of Philippi is located in. In 2 Corinthians 7.5, it says this, for even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had not rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. Afflicted at every turn gives you the idea that it's not an easy place to do ministry. And the second reference from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 and 2 says this, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. That's the province that Philippi is in. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. The Philippian church was dealing with opposition. They were not in an easy location to do ministry. But if our title this morning, Live Worthily in Unity Despite Opposition, is the what that we're talking about, our outline is going to trace how we're supposed to do that. Because I can go and say, hey, just go live worthy of the gospel. And you might say, amen, Brother Jason. But how are we supposed to do that? And that's why we're going to be taking a look at several different points this morning, which brings us to the first main point this morning. It's not a slide for this, but you can just write it down. Our first main point in our outline this morning is this. Opposition is to be faced in unity with other believers. Opposition is to be faced in unity with other believers. 
This comes from verse 27, where Paul says, Again, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I am absent, because remember he's under house arrest, I may hear that you are standing firm with one spirit, one mind, striving side by side by faith for the gospel. Now again, Paul, he's not sure of his itinerary. He's not sure if he's going to be released. He thinks he is, but he's not 100% certain about that. But he, in here, the, in verse 27, he encourages them to live worthy of the gospel. And that's going to be a theme that's carried throughout the majority of chapter 2, and he outlines it. But this isn't something that's just unique to the book of Philippians. Elsewhere in writing to the church in Ephesus, Paul says this in Ephesians 4.1, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And likewise, in Colossians 1 verse 10, it says this, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, as we walk through what it means to walk worthy of the gospel, we can get sometimes confused with all the different components and details. But if you're, gonna, if you're kind of feeling, you know, I'm getting lost, Jason, you're going fast, there's a lot going in here. Remember this, living worthy of the gospel means basically honoring God in what we do. Honoring the Lord in what we do and how we live. If we have been transformed by Jesus, let's live transformed for him. And yet one of the things that Paul stresses for them to do in verse 27 is for them to stand firm. And the Greek word there is synathaleo, which it has two parts, but it refers to a work with someone, either in opposition against them or in competitive struggle with them. And one part of this word is athaleo, which might sound familiar to you, and that's where we get our English word athletics, right? All the different sports, perhaps, that you or your kids or your grandkids might have played throughout the years. But this word contains athletic imagery, and that's something that's helpful to us because it puts a picture in our mind that helps us to understand our faith more and more. Because in the same way that people and athletes and teammates work together on the basketball court, or the cheerleading squad, or the soccer pitch. In any of those situations, people work together for a common goal as a team. And Paul is comparing that to the church. But let me ask this question. Why is unity something that is important to the church? Why is unity something that they should strive for? If you've ever been on an extended vacation with family, you probably might know. One time when my sister, before I lived in New Jersey, me and my sister came to New York City and we did all the tourist sites and we went to go see the ball drop on New Year's. That wasn't worth it. Don't do it. But we tried to do all these different things and it was a good time. But after a while, there was one day that I remember we just kind of got sick of each other. Not in a sense we didn't love each other anymore or we, did, we had some major falling out. It wasn't that. It was just that we had been around each other so much that as two broken people rubbing against each other in close proximity in life, because of that, you just sometimes need a break from people. And the same thing can be true in churches because as we have a large gathering of people, we're going to have multiple people that are going to be different from each other. Multiple people with many different opinions, and there's going to be opportunity for friction, for frustrations, and many, many, many opportunities to forgive one another. And yet, this is true of the Philippians as well. And the end in chapter 4, Paul encourages two women that were infighting between themselves to agree together in the Lord, giving us the clue that as he writes to the Philippians to walk in unity together, the reason for that is 
potentially because they were tempted not to walk in unity. And yet we see in verses and phrases in this passage that Paul stresses the idea of unity very strongly with phrases like one spirit, one mind, striving side by side together for the faith. That's the goal, to be able to pursue faith and grow in Christ. And yet, if I can again go back to our sports imagery again, when I was in middle school, I used to play basketball. I was not very good. I made one three-pointer my entire time. I was not great at all. But we had two members of our team that were fantastic at dribbling. They could dribble in and out of almost any situation, and they were talented beyond so many of us. But there was one situation that was, or one problem with that. Because of their talent, they didn't really work well with the team. Now, this isn't everybody in in basketball, but for these two individuals, it was. And so instead of us as a team trying to strive together for the goal of winning a game, it was a lot of times tried to be carried by these two individuals. And that can be similar when we compare this idea to the church, because we're not meant to all seek Christ in our own isolated personal walk. We're meant when we have opposition from the world, to face it together, fighting back to back, not accusing each other face to face. Because when oppression and opposition from the world comes on us, that's the moment where we need brothers and sisters in Christ all the more. How are we doing at that, church? Are we acting like a team that is striving together for a common purpose, or are we trying to do things in and of our own strength? Now, that doesn't mean that we gather together in the church every single day because we have your own personal responsibilities and jobs and lives that you're going through. But are we still going through life together, supporting one another, or are we rivaling one another? We might not play basketball, but the lesson is the same. The team is the church, and the goal is not just winning the game, but growing and striving for faith in Christ and growing in the gospel. And we will address this more on October 17th, where we're going to look at the second chapter of Philippians, where Paul exhorts the believers to not look only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. So if that point struck home to you, I encourage you to tune in on October 17th. But we aren't just encouraged to follow our first point. We also have several other points in our passage this morning. And the second one this morning is this, main point two. Opposition is to be faced without giving in to fear. Opposition is to be faced without giving in to fear. This comes comes from verse 28, where Paul continues in his discourse and says this, and not frightened in anything by your opponents, for this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now, Paul writes to them of opposition, and he is encouraging them not to be afraid, which probably implies that there is good reason to be afraid. They're not just being nervous for no reason, but they have good cause to be afraid. But in this situation, Paul is encouraging them not to be frightened in anything by their opponents. And the word for frightened in the Greek, one commentator describes it as it is similar to that fear that is going to startle horses and cause them to bolt and stampede. A similar phrase in our English language might be that you are shaking in your boots, you're scared about a situation, and you're not sure what to do. And Paul is not saying that you don't go into a situation having no fear whatsoever. That's not human. 
And if we say that we've never had any fear in our life, we probably are lying. But Paul is exhorting us to have self-control over that fear rather than letting that fear dominate and run our life so that we can't make decisions based off of God's wisdom, but we're dominated by our own personal fear in that situation. And yet, when it comes to this verse, that first section, not frightened anything by your opponents, that usually makes sense. But that next phrase really, really confuses a lot of people. And when I first read through Philippians, I was wondering, what does that mean? I don't understand. Where he says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. What does that mean? What does he mean by this? What he's referring to is that when believers are not frightened when we encounter opposition, that is the sign to unbelievers because it shows that we are not ultimately afraid of them in our earthly circumstances, but that ultimately we fear God and trust in him. And it's a sign of our salvation because we are ready to endure judgments and persecutions in this world because we do not want to stand under the judgment hand of God in eternity. That's what he's referring to in that. And you might say, okay, well, that's the intellectual understanding of that. But how does that affect us? How does that affect us in my personal living here today in 2020 of all crazy years in northern New Jersey? This affects us immensely because what it means is that the way that we respond to opposition to our faith matters because it is an opportunity for our actions to be a witness to the work of God in our lives. Because this is the kind of peace when we encounter opposition, if we have a peace, that is the peace that has dumbfounded people in the world because it shows that what these Christians claim to know is not empty philosophy or just traditional religion, but what they claim to believe they follow through in moments of opposition, showing that it's real and it's not just a crutch that we lean on because of our own understanding. Do you see the importance of this? This is something that is important for all of us, and this is an area where we all have room to grow in as well. But the way that we respond to opposition to the faith matters because it's an opportunity for us to bear witness to Christ by our words and our actions when we encounter hardship. And I want to illustrate this for you by taking a, a look at one other passage of Scripture. If you have a Bible or you're on your Bible app, I encourage you, turn with me, actually, in your Bible. Don't just hear that, but turn with me, actually, to Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 8, right after Peter had healed a man in the temple. Acts chapter 4, verse 8. Now the word of God says this in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, that's what they're asking him, then let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become Come the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But look at verse 13. 
Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they recognized that, or they were astonished, excuse me, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Let that sink in for a moment. The way that they responded to opposition, not dominated by fear, but trusting in God ultimately above it all, was a witness to them so that the Jews were astonished at what was taking place. So what does that mean for us? This means that it is okay to be afraid when opposition arises, but we shouldn't let that fear dominate our lives. Because the scriptures say over and over and over again that we should not fear, but also that we should ultimately fear only one person. Any idea who, who that is? God. And Paul writes this because the Philippians aren't perfect, and we aren't either. But that's why God is gracious, and he enables us to grow and to continue in our progress of seeking him. It's one thing to face opposition to the gospel with a present fear that is self-controlled, saying, I'm fearful, Lord, but I'm going to trust you in the midst of this situation. But it is another thing to be dominated by that fear again and to run from opposition so that we never take a stand for our faith. And that is what Paul does not want us to do. And if this is something where maybe God's tugging at your heart, I'd encourage you to write down three references that I want to give to you. The first is from 1 Thessalonians 2.4 where Paul, writing to the church in Thessalonica, who had their own challenges, says this, But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please men, but to please God who tests our hearts. Ultimately, yes, we're doing things. We interact with people. We want to love other people and tell them about Jesus. But we don't live for the pleasure of others. We live for the pleasure and service of the king because that is liberating and satisfying and delightful. That's 1 Thessalonians 2.4. But also, I encourage you, write down Proverbs 29.25, which says this, The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. How true that is in this day and age. Proverbs 29.25. And the last one I have for you is Joshua 1.9. Some of you probably know this verse well. Joshua 1.9, where the Lord commands Joshua, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous, do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And I'm encouraging us to remember these verses of Scripture because when Satan comes against us, he seeks to cast doubt. And the best way to counter lies is to blunt them with the truth of God's word because that is encouraging us as we go through this life and we deal with opposition to the faith. And remember, church, that the way that we respond to opposition matters because it's an opportunity for us to bear witness to Christ when we are saying things, but also based on how we live. Now, not only is opposition to be faced without giving in to fear, but opposition from men is also an opportunity from Christ to suffer for his sake. It sounds similar, but that's our third point this morning. Main point number three, opposition from men is an opportunity from Christ to suffer for his sake. Opposition from men is an opportunity from Christ to suffer for his sake. And this comes to us from verse 29, where the word of God says this, <clears throat> 
For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. This verse is a powerful verse. And for sometimes we get in this mindset that Christianity is only supposed to be about following God when it's convenient. And this verse shatters that, that lie when it comes into our minds because it's saying that we are not just to believe in him, but we have also been granted to suffer for his sake. Now think about the situation again. The Philippians are dealing with persecution and opposition to their faith. And if you wanted to encourage them based on your own wisdom, how would you do it? Would you pray for them? Would you remind them of the truths of heaven? Would you tell them of a future reward? I probably would do one of those things. But Paul, inspired by the Spirit, did not do that. Instead, he reminds them that they're called not just to believe in God, but also to suffer for his sake. But you might say, time out. How is that reassuring a church that is enduring opposition and persecution? Why would you say that to a church that's already in challenges? And I believe the answer comes from the English word that we have for granted right there. It's granted to your sake. And that's the Greek word ekeriste, which comes from the root word charis, which is the Greek word for grace. Now, grace means unmerited favor. It means that you are receiving favor not predicated for something that you have done. If you know your Bibles well, what verse do we go to when we want to say that we have been saved by grace through faith, not by works? That's right, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. That's right, that's right. We go to that verse where it is by grace that you have been saved. That's the verse that we always go to. And we say, yes, salvation, that is a gift from God. And absolutely, that is 100% true. But the same root word is here in this passage in Philippians, for it is granted to you not only to believe, but also to suffer for his sake. And you might be saying, well, that is really confusing. Because as soon as we hear that, we might say, how is suffering a gracious gift from God? Because in our human understanding, that goes against everything that earthly wisdom says. If I were to say suffering is a benefit to you in your faith, if, you were to, if we just look at that from an earthly perspective, we say that does not make sense. But Paul is reframing the Philippians' perception of what suffering is because what we might say by our own wisdom is folly, God's word sheds light on. And instead of seeking to argue with rhetoric or with stories, I want to stress this point by taking you to three different passages of Scripture and letting Scripture interpret Scripture and show you that this is something from the Word of God. This isn't something that Jason just took and said, I want to say this from Philippians. But this is something that's true within the Scriptures. James 1.12 says this, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do we catch that? As James is writing to them, as they encounter trials, he says, count it all joy because it's going to produce in you steadfastness. What we would say is worthless in our own wisdom, God says he can use for his own purposes and produce steadfastness in our lives. But this isn't the only verse that speaks of trials or opposition to the faith. Look also at 1 Peter 6 and 7. I invite you to turn there with me. 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. It's just to the right of Philippians a little bit. First Peter says this, 
In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what is or what are these things bringing about according to Peter? Praise, honor, and glory, but not right now. Not in this present world, but at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But the most convicting and encouraging verse that I have found in the scriptures in my personal life when it comes to this topic comes from the Gospel of Luke in chapter 6. In the Gospel of Luke chapter 6, there's a section for the Beatitudes, which we all are very familiar with, and a lot of times we go to the Gospel of Matthew. And that's a solid gospel. We can build our life on the truth of that gospel. But Luke adds another component that Matthew does not in his section. Because Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 20, says this. This is the familiar section. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. If we're persecuted for our faith, for the name of Christ, we are in good company, Luke says. But he doesn't end there. Luke continues on mentioning something that Matthew does not, which says this, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. If we seek for things and everything to go well in this world and that to be the default for all of our lives, we have a little bit of skewed expectations. Now, this doesn't mean that we can't enjoy things in life. Remember a few weeks ago, balance this truth with the truth that we heard from Ecclesiastes, that there are things in life that God has given us to enjoy. So life is not just as Christians to go out and seek trouble and to live a joyless life looking to heaven. That is not what the scriptures talk about. The benediction I always try to give is from Romans chapter 15, verse 13, which speaks of may the God of hope. We live in hope, but our hope, again, is not based in this present world ultimately ultimately, but in the heavens when we will be with God. And that is a place where our hope will not fade. It will not be disappointed. There will not be sorrow or sin or temptation or opposition to our faith, but we will be known then as we have been fully known. So now what? Now that we understand that opposition from men is an opportunity to suffer for Christ, how does that affect our lives? Well, let me suggest at least three ways. Know that when we suffer for the name of Christ, it is not meaningless. In those moments, Satan is going to try to tempt us to say, is it really worth it to stand for Christ and endure all of this challenge on his name? But it is. James said it brings steadfastness. Peter says it it will result in honor and glory. And Luke says that our reward is great in heaven. There are great rewards. We just might not see them yet. 
Secondly, we should remember that Christ cares for us in the suffering and promises to be with us. Another lie that Satan is probably going to tell us is that God does not see you, he's far from you, and he does not care about you as you go through this opposition to your faith, and that is a lie. Because Hebrews 13.5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God is good. He is with us even through the most challenging circumstances. He is still God. He has not forgotten us or forsaken us. He still loves us and cares about every single one of us. And lastly, the one truth I want us to remember is this, that it is worth it to live for Christ in those moments. It is worth it to go all in for Christ. It is worth it to take a stand with Christ when the world opposes us because he is more rewarding than anything else. And if you're in a moment where you're saying, I'm still chewing on that, I encourage you, I implore you, write down this verse, 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, where Paul says this, speaking of this present world, for this light and momentary affliction, Remember, this is the man who was beaten with rods, who has been arrested, who has been shipwrecked, who has literally been stoned. The man who has endured all of those things, probably more than any of us by our own life will have to endure, says this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, this present world, but we look to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, they're going to be fleeting and like vapor will pass away. But the things that are unseen are eternal. What a reassurance to our hearts that is. That's why it's in his word that we seek to hope. Remember, church, in moments where we encounter opposition or persecution to our faith, It has been granted to us. It's not commanded or obligational and just saying I'm going to do this begrudgingly for the sake of Christ. God has graciously given us opportunities to suffer in this name. Because one day there won't be any more opportunity to suffer for Christ. Because all things will be set right. It's a limited time opportunity. But just as opposition from men is an opportunity from Christ to suffer for his sake... We too must remember that opposition is not unique to just my situation, which is our fourth and final point this morning. Opposition is not unique to my situation. This comes from verse 30 of Philippians, the last verse in the chapter, where Paul says this, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Now, what is he referring to? What conflict that he had? Remember when he came to Philippi, he had some success in ministry, but immediately he was put in prison and there was opposition to his faith. That's what the Philippians saw. And at that point, they had not yet come to faith or there were just a few of them who had come to faith. But now more have come to faith. They've grown in Christ. They've matured in Christ. And now they're being persecuted. It's a sign of that they are growing in Christ because as they seek to follow Paul, as he follows Christ, they are becoming Paul, or they're becoming like Paul in the ways that Paul is like Christ, not like Paul is like himself. And that's a good, good thing. But this final verse is a point of comfort and camaraderie. Because in moments where we encounter opposition to the faith, those are the moments where we might be tempted to think that we're the only person enduring this on the face of the earth. Because that's the lie that Satan puts in all of our minds. 
I can remember between my high school and my college years, uh, I went to Michigan for a season. Went to all the way to the tippy top of the lower peninsula of Michigan, and we did a Campus Crusade summer project where we did evangelism and discipleship and tried to do outreach. The same thing that Joey Sforza does here in New Jersey. Pray for him. He's doing the Lord's work here. But when we were there in Michigan in the summertime, sometimes we would go out and share our faith with people and try to get in conversations and tell them about Jesus. And oftentimes, people were not very receptive. And oftentimes, they were not just closed to it, but they were quite nasty with us about the whole situation. And it's easy in those moments, a lot of times we came back from the end of doing outreach saying, you know what, I feel quite discouraged in this moment. Lord, I've tried to share your gospel, I've tried to pray about this, I've tried to outreach to a friend of mine or somebody that I interacted with, and it's just not working. And we would come together in the evenings, all together, from doing outreach and sharing the gospel to the best of our ability, by God's grace. And we would share about what the Lord did. And there was some encouraging things, because while there were some of us that said, yeah, you know, uh, we, we, nobody came to faith, we didn't get any good conversations, but we tried to do our best. And we would hear about the fact that God was working in other groups, and hear, hey, this one person coming from a crazy background came to know Jesus, and we had a fantastic conversation that was comforting. But what was also comforting was the fact that there were other people who were trying to be fishers of men, and they didn't have any success that day. And they were dealing with maybe the same doubts that we were saying, am I doing this right? Is anyone going to listen to me? Is it worth it to keep on taking a stand for Christ? And when we heard about the fact that God was bringing people to faith and building up his church despite all of our efforts and that there were others who were doing the same thing as we to the best of our abilities, but they didn't have any results and that we were all doing it to the glory of God, it was comforting because we were doing our part and leaving the results up to God. And that's a liberating thing. Trying to put all of God's work on our shoulders does not end well. But rather, when we encounter difficulty and opposition to the faith, we are not alone, and others are going through that as well. And if you doubt that, ask them. Ask them. It's an opportunity to pray. It's an opportunity to have encouragement. Remember, we're supposed to go through life united as the church, not divided. Persecution from outside of the church can be grievous and difficult, and we haven't had to deal with that very much here in the States at all, and we're very blessed by that. But what at times can be even more detrimental to a church is not persecution from outside the church, but disunity and fighting within the church. That's something that we should pray against and strive to not have in our lives. Now, as I said, again, here in the States, we have not been met with much, much persecution like the Philippians. Yes, there are individual circumstances, and there are things in this current culture where we're shifting further and further away from Christ in our culture, but that shouldn't be something that completely drains all of our joy, because we know at the end of the day that God said, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. God is the one who builds his church, not us by our own wisdom or our own ability. And yet, even in the midst of that, we know that God is faithful and that if we do encounter more opposition, he is going to provide for us and he is going to comfort us and he will sustain us through all of these things. And yes, we've been inconvenienced by COVID-19. We have to wear masks and things are not great. And it's very, very inconvenient. But it's not persecution in the same sense that the Philippians were dealing with. And we can be grateful for that. Yes, it's not ideal. Yes, it's not fun. Yes, we probably wouldn't choose to live 2020 over again. But we still have it so good here in America. If you don't believe me, check out what other brothers and sisters have to go through 
on a daily basis. I haven't been to prison yet in America, and I'm thankful for that. We have it so good here. Now, in conclusion, Paul again exhorts us to live worthily of the gospel in unity, despite opposition. In the next couple times I preach on Philippians, whenever that may be, in a few weeks or a long time from now, we're going to see that Paul again exhorts them to live worthy of the gospel in unity, not in isolation, in unity together. It's a two-way, it's a two-way street. We follow Christ in what we do personally and also corporately together. But we are supposed to do it despite opposition. And that opposition is to be faced in unity with other believers. God has given us the church, the body of Christ, to go through things together, not by ourselves. Also, we must remember that opposition is to be faced without giving in to fear. Yes, there are good reasons to be afraid, but we shouldn't let that fear dominate us. We should surrender it to Christ to the best of our ability and live within self-control of that. And again, if we're having trouble with that, go to the scriptures and immerse ourselves in truth. Or perhaps call a brother or sister in Christ and say, hey, can you pray for me? Because I need encouragement, just like we all do in this area at times. We must also remember that opposition from men is an opportunity from Christ to suffer for his sake. Again, this is like that weird point in this text that doesn't make any sense by our own standing. But when we encounter opposition, it's an opportunity for us to bear witness for Christ, to suffer for him, and that people might see that we have been with Jesus. And that would bring him honor and glory. And lastly, we must remember that opposition is not just unique to my personal situation, but that this struggle that we have in the faith is being endured by all believers around the world. Because, again, it's appointed to us not only to believe, but also to suffer. Meaning that if we are a believer in Jesus Christ, at some point we will suffer for our faith. Sometimes more, sometimes less. Some people don't have that much suffering in their life, but they still have some. So we shouldn't be surprised when it comes in our life. Now lastly, I want to pray to God, asking him to that end that he might enable us to follow these things. Because again, we can know these things and it's easy to preach. It's hard to live. So let's pray for God to be able to give us grace to live well as we seek to obey his word. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this word from Philippians. And again, Lord, In my own wisdom, Lord, I would not have chosen to preach this sermon this Sunday, Lord. It seems like it's uh, for a different context or a different time. But, Lord, I pray that you would use it, Lord Jesus, in ways that you see fit and that you would be at work in ways that we can never imagine, Lord Jesus. Father, I pray, Lord Jesus, for boldness, Lord Jesus, for us as believers, Lord, whether we encounter great opposition in this life or not, that we might have a boldness to live for Jesus no matter the context, and that we might seek one another, asking each other to pray on that behalf as well, because we are not bold in and of ourselves to stand for Christ. That is something that you have to do in a work in our hearts. And Lord God, secondly, God, I pray that as The context outside the church can change greatly. We pray that you would unite us together in love more and more as we see your day approaching. Father God, again, this is not something that we can do in our strength, but Father, you have given us the body of Christ. Would you help us to love one another, to pray for each other, to encourage each other, to forgive one another, and to be gracious with each other, Lord, as we are all saints, but we're all still on your production line of sanctification. No one here is fully perfect, and if we are, we'd be with you in heaven. So, Father, would you help us to remember that as we seek to live worthy with your brothers and sisters. And as we approach your table, Lord Jesus, and remember your sacrifice, 
would you be at work in our hearts in ways that we never could imagine, but that only you could work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.